You're listening to the GIST podcast, a place where we come together and meet the many wonderful people who make GIST what it is, a place of learning, of community, of diversity and global citizenship. Perhaps the most fundamental role of teachers is to provide students with high quality feedback to improve their learning. The way we provide this feedback though has changed significantly in recent years and is the source of much controversy and debate amongst educational experts and teachers. To talk all about this today, we're joined on the podcast by Tom Shimmer. Tom is an education author, speaker and consultant from Vancouver, Canada. He's recognised as a leader and expert in the areas of classroom assessment, sound grading practices, educational leadership and responses to intervention. Tom is an experienced sought-after presenter who's delivered both keynote and workshop sessions in major conferences, as well as worked with dozens of schools internationally. He's the author and co-author of six books, and today we are very fortunate to have him join us on the show. Tom, welcome to the GIST podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me today. Looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I'm very excited about having you on the show today, and thank you for joining us from Canada on a Sunday night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, Sunday, Sunday evening, afternoon, late, late afternoon, evening for sure. Yeah, right. it's all good. Excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> so Tom, before we get into the into the real gist of, of what we have you on the show for today, can you tell us a little bit about your own journey in education? Yeah, my journey began 30 years ago. I started in 1991. I was a high school history teacher and uh, you know, I began my career as a pretty traditional high school history teacher and all the stereotypes you can think of when it comes to uh, being a high school teacher in terms of assessment and marking and grading. Um, I really embodied those and, and began um, basically along the same lines of what was done to me as a teacher. I, I didn't have a lot of training in assessment for sure in my teacher training. And so when I first got into the press, in the, uh, the profession, I basically just mimicked what my high school history teachers had done with me and to me. And that kind of uh, took me, took me along, you know, that first few years, you know, it was about 17 years ago when I discovered this work around assessment that sort of emerged in the latter half of the nineties and the early part of the two thousands, it was the 2003, 2004 school year. And I can really divide my career into three stages. Um, 1991 to 1997 was, I was very much that traditional teacher. In 1997, my daughter was born. And I don't think you have to be a parent to be a great educator, but I know that I needed my daughter to be born to be even a good one. And so what immediately happened to me when I look back in retrospect is I realized that I started to look at school and examine all of the things I did through the lens of what if that was my daughter? And I became a little uncomfortable with some of the practices that I had been using for the first six years of my career. But here was the problem. The problem was I didn't know what to do differently. So I was in this, I call it now the assessment purgatory, where I I didn't really, I knew I didn't want to do what I was continuing to do, but I didn't know what else to do. And it wasn't until the 2003-2004 school year where I kind of hit a, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but I I hit a bit of a breaking point as a teacher. I was an assistant principal teaching part-time. And so in my 50% teaching responsibilities, I became very frustrated with my inability to really reach all of my students. And so I became a little bit desperate, looking 
outside the school and looking in the professional world, the world of academia. And I asked the question, what is going on in this profession that I'm not getting right now? What am I missing mm. from my repertoire? And of course, I, I sort of discovered the the renaissance and assessment practices that was happening in the early part of the 2000s. And the rest, as they say, was history. It began changing my classroom practices and led me to leading a lot of initiatives at the school level. It led me to writing books and speaking. And here we are in 2021. And um, I'm working with your school and I work with uh, so many schools around the world. Well, and hopefully still as a, one history teacher to another, I hope you're still keeping up with your history. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, so... <laughs> So you've been working with just leadership throughout uh, the 2021 school year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on with the leadership here? What we've been working on is developing the assessment literacy and the assessment uh, process and systems and structures and routines around the school. When I say assessment literacy, what listeners should understand about that is essentially being literate in assessment practices means that a teacher or a school would understand both the depth and breadth of all of the aspects of assessment that lead to student achievement. Assessment is the engine that drives so many things. In fact, everything that we do, because all of our decisions we make uh, around what's next for learners, decisions we make about interventions to how to help to support students, decisions we make about extending their learning, decision, all of the decisions we make are contingent upon us having good, reliable information from the experiences that the students have and, and the assessments that they take and, and the evidence that we reveal. And so making sure that the evidence is accurate, that it is sound and making sure that it is reliable, meaning that we can count on what it's telling us, uh, that's really important for us to make so many important decisions uh, you know, in our work. So we've been working on developing sort of the breadth and depth of assessment understanding, helping the leadership team sort of reaffirm some things they already know, uh, tighten up some misunderstandings that may or may not exist, and then help sort of engineer those opportunities within the larger school so that there is alignment with an understanding of what sound assessment looks like. Yeah, and I, and I want to come back to some of those um, ideas in a little bit. Um, you wrote a book in 2011 that was called 10 Things That Matter From Assessment to, gra to Grading. Mm -hmm. The first chapter is called Being the Change Matters. Could you elaborate a little mm -hmm. bit on what you mean by this change? You've talked about your own change as an educator and the journey mm -hmm. that you came through in your experiences. What yeah. do you mean by this overall change? Well, one of the things that I learned over the years was and I, and I say this just because it's true. When I, when I started changing my assessment practices, I was the only one in my school doing it. And it, it really came not from a, like I said, a, it, it didn't come from a position of inspiration. It wasn't this divine intervention. It was a, it was a moment of desperation. And when I began to change those practices, very quickly, many of my colleagues started to ask me questions because, of course, I taught students, but they also taught the same students and they would go to their classrooms and say, well, Mr. Shimmer doesn't do it that way. And how come you're doing it differently? And all of these conversations would occur. And what, I, what it helped me realize was that whenever we want a shift in practice, we, to the best of our ability, we can either talk about it or we can become it. And be, being that change means, you know, fully... Em embracing those practices and beginning to implement them in 
in our own schools, in our own classrooms, and, and really modeling for others what these might look like. So it's really about action. It's about um, moving ahead and, and not just talking about things and not hypothesizing about things and not you know, thinking about philosophy, but actually putting things into practice. You're going to make mistakes. We, we always do. Not, nothing we ever implement goes perfectly the first time. And so being able to reflect on those implementation mistakes. Now, when, when I say mistakes, I, I want listeners to understand that when teachers make mistakes in implementation, it's not an egregious error that's going to compromise their child's education or anything like that. It's just nuances. It's ways that, you know, the mistakes are really just ways that it could have been better or it could have been more effective. And that's that's how every change effort kind of goes. So the first time you implement anything, you're always going to be able to reflect and improve upon it. So for me, it's about the doing as opposed to the talking about it, right? The, the real change happens when we actually take action upon those things that we're thinking. Tom, do you recall one of the first changes that you made to your own assessment practices when you started to um, to latch on to this renaissance, I guess you said, in, in assessment? Yeah, there, there were a few. I, I think one of the things that um, I think one of the things that I enhanced, I wouldn't say that I didn't do it, but one of the things that I enhanced and definitely was more purposeful about was making sure that my students understand specifically what was being learned each day. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds simple, simple and, and maybe oversimplified, but it's really critical that if we want students to meet targets, if we want them to meet standards, if we want them to demonstrate learning at high levels, they have to know what the target is. They have to have a consistent vision of what learning looks like and what excellence looks like in terms of the criteria. So that was one enhancement I made. And the other change that I made was taking the standards, the ultimate learning goal, and unpacking them. And unpacking them in a way that students could see how the smaller skills, the granular skills, the definitions, the formulas, the the different things that students had to learn on that journey toward meeting the standard, how they were interconnected, and understanding how they'd be sequenced. So the easiest way to reflect on that is to think about the way we would take a recipe and we would unpack a recipe and identify all of the ingredients that were necessary to make a meal. Well, when I started doing that, my students started to understand why we were doing certain things on certain days. That I started to see a reduction in the questions of, why am I learning this today? Because they understood that this isn't about you just memorizing definitions or understanding formulas or, or anything like that, but this is about you knowing these things so that we can do something with that information going forward, that you'll be able to do some critical thinking or that you'll be able to solve some problems and so forth. So I think that that was a major change. And then I became, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint one of the first ones, but that would be a big one. Feedback was another one. I was much more specific and precise with my feedback to advanced learning. And then certainly on the grading and marking and scoring side of the ledger, one of the first things I did was eliminate any behavioral influences uh, when it came to determining a student's grade. That again, I know this for listeners might sound oversimplified, but I really did have to make some changes to ensure that a student's grade was only the result of the quality of evidence that they produced. And there was no way my students could behave their way through extra credit up the achievement scale or no way they could behave their way down the achievement scale through, you know, 
uh, missteps behaviorally, you know, handing in work late and things like that. So, so the grading side of the ledger was a whole nother conversation, but I would say that the, the, the making learning transparent, the feedback piece, the unpacking of the learning and, and putting into a progression, and then thinking about how I marked grade and scored. Uh, those were some of the first changes I made and, and they made a huge impact on not just the accuracy of the information I received, but they really did impact my students' disposition around learning. They, they seemed to understand, if you will, the rules to the game a lot clearer uh, than they had in the past. And, and so uh, building on from what you were talking about, the, the idea of grading and, and removing mm-hmm. the behavioral piece, you know, any student, any teacher, any parent will tell you that the concept of assessment and feedback is such an emotional one. Um, mm-hmm. And so why do you think that is the case? Why is assessment and feedback such an emotional one? And perhaps you could talk a little bit about this concept of the coat of armour that you talk about in your writing. Yeah, it, it is emotional because anytime you know, we're being judged, it is an emotional experience. And I, and I tell teachers all the time that the only question is what emotions you will produce. There is no question in my mind that every student will have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed. For some listeners out there, you, you might recall a time when you were assessed and, and you're a parent now, or, or you're, you know, you're a, a well-adjusted adult. And if I asked you to think of a time when you were assessed and it was a negative experience, you probably could remember, and it might've been in grade three, mm. or it might've been in grade five. And you remember what day it was. And you remember what you were wearing and you remember what the topic was. We, this, we don't, those feelings stay with us. And so the question is not, will they have an emotional reaction? They will. The only question is, will that emotional reaction be productive or will it be counterproductive? And I would submit to listeners and and to all teachers that through our assessment practices, we can actually help build confidence. We can build, you know, confidence, efficacious learners who really believe that success is possible because it is, you know, the, as the expression goes, the proof is in the pudding. When the results come back positive, there's only two reactions. One is you've met the learning goal or two, we know more about what you need to do in order to meet the learning goal. So the coat of armor really comes out of this research from two researchers, uh, Henry Weisinger and J.P. Polly Fry. Um, and, and they wrote the book, uh, Performing Under Pressure, The Science of Doing Your Best When It Matters the Most. And what their research found was that there were some common characteristics. And, and just to give listeners some context, they, they were looking at Fortune 500 companies. They were looking at professional athletes. They were looking at very successful individuals in society. And they asked a question. And the overarching research question was, why is it that some people perform better under pressure than other people? Um, and they, they debunked some myths. Uh, the one myth they debunked was this idea that some people perform better under pressure than they do otherwise. And that's a total myth in our society. There's, statistically, that never plays out. The difference was that some people perform better than other people under pressure. And that's why it looks like they rise to the occasion, but they don't really. Okay. So the coat of armor really speaks to the common characteristics that emerged from the research that said, you know, this is, these are the characteristics that really are common amongst professional athletes, amongst successful businesses, amongst people who are highly successful. And so now let me give listeners the backdrop, and then we'll get to what the coat of armor represents. The reason I think this research is so important is because of that emotional side. I don't think there's much in a student's experience that exerts as much pressure 
on students as assessment does. Um, the only argument I could, I think, is on par with assessment is the social circumstance. I, I do think that for especially middle school and high school students, the social circumstance can be very pressure packed. But if assessment's not number one, it's number two for this kind of pressure. So as schools, if that's the case, then we would be wise to think about what does it take for us to help students handle pressure? Avoiding pressure is not possible. Pressure is unavoidable, especially some of the assessments and the standardized tests and all, all that students have to, to, to endure. So therefore, we think about how do we help people, students, handle pressure when those pressure moments inevitably arrive? And the coat of armor is an acronym that stands for confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. And so when the research team, again, Weisinger and Polly Fry, what they found was that the common characteristic amongst those who handle pressure better than other people are those who approach pressure situations with confidence, optimism, tenacity, and enthusiasm. So if you can think about that sort of flow chart or that little bit of you know, sequencing I just presented, if assessment is as pressure packed as we say it is, and if then it is important for us to help students uh, develop the characteristics necessary to handle pressure, then it would be wise for schools and teachers to think about how do we develop confident, optimistic, tenacious, and enthusiastic learners through our assessment practices. And so that would be an aspect that I would say, if any of our assessment practices, routines, structures, any rules, policies, undermine any or all of those common characteristics, then we really are setting our students up to fail. Uh, those characteristics are not just for students and not just for learning. They are a common characteristic of people who handle pressure better than other people. So I love the code of armor. And while you're talking about <laughs> it, I'm actually thinking about the four R's that we have within our school, you know, the dispositional uh, learning that we encourage our students to to take on. Right. So what are the best methods of assessment and grade? Can you narrow it down or is that question too large? Are there best methods or is it a collection of lots of different little things um, that provide students with meaningful feedback for learning? Well, there, there are some best practices and I could, I could give you, I mean, there's a lot of nuance and there are a lot of technical things that, that teachers need to pay attention to, but, but I could, I can give you three. Let's start with the grading side and then we'll talk about the feedback side. On the grading side, I can give you basically three big ideas that underneath these three big ideas will be a lot of work, a lot of detail, and a lot of things to consider. Mm -hmm. The first being something I've mentioned already, and that is we should have a grading system where it's not possible for a student to behave their way up or down the achievement scale. Mm -hmm. And that really just speaks to the idea that when you're reporting on achievement, you should report on achievement. And if you're reporting on behavior, uh, or characteristics or student attributes or habits, then you should report on those. And those two should be kept. And I think it's really critical that we state that both matter. You know, I made a comment earlier about late work. I don't want anybody to have the impression that handing in work late is okay. It's not, especially for older students. They really do need to learn to be responsible and they need to learn how to meet deadlines and they need to be held accountable for their work. However, the pathway to that is not distorting their achievement level by docking them because they're a couple of days late. Because what ends up happening there is you end up distorting the achievement level so you can't have a clear picture of where they are. So just for a simple example, 
if a student presented, you know, handed in some uh, an assignment or some work and the teacher graded it at an 80 percent, but the teacher had a policy of taking 10 percent off per day it was late and the, the assignment was two days late, then that assignment would have been reduced by 20 percent. Right. And so therefore, um, you know, they would have lost you know, points off of that, and you would have got a, a distorted achievement level, right? You would have been down to a 60. So a 60%, depending on what the actual ratio was, but the 60% that would have been the reduction by but that 10%, right? Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't really clearly communicate where the learner is, because the evidence that we gathered said differently than 60%. So again, it's not okay that students hand in work late, but it's not okay that we distort their achievement levels as a result of the lateness. The other side to that, the extra credit, is also problematic. That if I do some extra credit, I'm the nice kid who tries hard, I follow all the rules, I complete all my work, that I get some bonus out of that. That also distorts their achievement. So the first thing we think about is making sure that a student's grade is only a reflection of the evidence or the consistency of evidence that the student has produced. And a student can't um, just harvest points in order to reach that ratio. The second one is to make sure that a student's grade is not contingent upon who their teacher is, especially if you have more than one teacher teaching the same grade level. We have standards that we teach to, learning outcomes or goals that we teach to, and they are across the subject the same for each teacher teaching, for example, grade nine English language arts. Therefore, those teachers that teach the same grade level should have the same view of what excellence looks like. It shouldn't, I shouldn't win or lose the teacher lottery as a result of a, a teacher having high standards or low standards because we have these standards and those standards are set at a particular level of sophistication and therefore, it really would be inappropriate for a teacher to lower the expectation or raise the expectation exponentially simply because they want to give the illusion of rigor. So we have to come to terms with being on the same page. And the third one, and this probably connects more to listeners, uh, especially parents and, and other stakeholders, is that grading is no longer about comparing students to students that grading is really focused on, and this is not a new concept, but grading is really focused on the meeting of criteria. Uh, so it's me against the criteria. It's not how I compare to my classmate. I might write an exemplary essay and, and therefore my teacher rates me as exemplary. That, that is of no consequence if another student in the class happens to write like a third year university student. Mm. It's not about comparing that student to me it's about me to the criteria. And that student, you know, she writes like a third year university student and she's wonderful and she's exceptional and she's got all kinds of talents and strengths and writing and all of that, but that doesn't diminish my accomplishment. So those are the three is that, you know, we can't behave our way up or down the grading scale. Uh, my grade should never be dependent upon who my teacher is. And my grade should be dependent on the quality of evidence I produce, not how I compare to my classmates. Now, again, as I said earlier, inside of all of that are all of the nuanced things that we're talking about and working with, with the faculty um, and, and the leadership team. Now on the feedback side, oh, do go ahead. No, 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 no. you keep going. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So on the feedback side, um, there are some big ideas um, that, that we want to make sure that we, we touch upon. And I'm going to talk about five of them very quickly. Um, they're not overly robust, but again, for teachers inside these five, they are very important. Uh, the first one is that we want to make sure that students are using our feedback. So the most important thing that teachers can do when they provide feedback that provides next steps in learning is make sure that students are responding positively or productively to 
the receiving of feedback. We always have to remind ourselves as educators that it's not the existence or the giving of feedback that makes the difference in terms of achievement. And the research around in academia around feedback is almost unanimous that the way to advance learning is through feedback. This is an important point also to mention that grading is not how you raise achievement. So for listeners out there, this is not a question of how do those grading practices increase achievement? Well, they don't because that's not how you raise achievement. You raise achievement through intervention and you raise achievement through uh, strategies and grading is neither of those. Grading is measurement. Okay. So now with feedback, we're focused on raising achievement through the using of the feedback. So the only way that students are going to increase their achievement is by actually taking the teacher's feedback and actually using it and trying to increase their learning. So the first one is, does my feedback trigger or elicit a productive response from the learner? Second is we want our feedback to focus on what's next. So teachers will provide students, you know, what's the next step in their learning? How do I keep advancing my learning? How do I move along the trajectory? My th The third one is that we want to make sure that feedback is targeted to where the learner is or just slightly above where they are. Even though we're striving for excellence, there's times feedback can be overwhelming and too sophisticated for where the learner is. So we try to target the feedback to push them, but not make the feedback out of reach. The fourth one is to think about feedback being strength-based. We don't want to just identify deficiencies. Think of that coat of armor, right? We want students to remain confident. So it's important that we point out to them, here's what's strong. Now here's what needs strengthening. And then the fifth one is, does my feedback cause thinking? We want feedback to trigger thinking in our students, not just you know telling them what to do, but giving them cues or questions or prompts that get them to dig back into their own work. So those would be the five. Does it elicit a productive response? Does it identify what's next? Is it targeted to just slightly above where the learner is? Is it strength-based and does it cause thinking? Uh, I know that was a mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell me then, like we, we've seen this real, uh, as you say, renaissance of, of in assessment and feedback. You know, it's grown and evolved so much in recent years from when you and I were students and really importantly since when our parents were students. So where do you think yeah. it will continue to go? Where, do you, where would you like to see um, all of this area of our teaching in 10 to 20 years? If you can answer that, it's not an easy question. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I think that in in one respect, I would um, just to sort of play up on the theme, I would like assessment to not go anywhere because on the one hand, because assessment really is that engine, as I talked about earlier. So I would want in, in one, on one level, I would want assessment to remain so central to the work that we do, because again, assessment is not just about testing. It's about you know, eliciting evidence so we can make good decisions at the same time. The spirit of your question is, where do we want to see assessment evolve to? Um, you know, I think ideally we would, we would get to a place where, um, you know, there, the way that we grade is very much a departure from that traditional model and that we really do look at not just the quality of evidence, but what evidence we're gathering. So I'd want us to be able to refine our ability to determine where students are, say, with 21st century competencies. You know, so can we find a way, can we continue to refine our skills 
it's interesting when you think about 10 to 20 years, because that sounds like a lot. Um, and yet I'm 17 years into this assessment journey. And in some schools, I'm still having the same conversations we had 17 years ago in the schools within which I worked. So I think sometimes we can think that 10 to 20 years is a lifetime and it is, you know, it's a generation or so, but but I think that we're going to have to continue. I would like to see an increased refinement in our ability to assess and report on our students' growth with and, and achievement in those 21st century competencies in critical thinking and collaboration and communication and self-regulation, digital citizenship, all of those different sort of competencies and our ability to create criteria that helps them grow in those areas. I'd like to see us not so stuck on content. You know, we information has never been more readily available, and yet you know, we continue to see places where assessment is so focused on content, um, you know, uh, repetition or, or content, you know, uh, refinement or just continuing to repeat the things that are so tangible that can be looked at. I'd like to see us be in a place where grading and, and reporting was not this epic event, but that there was an ongoing system that allowed real information, more than just logging into the online gradebook and seeing what my child's mark is, but but an ongoing reporting system that allowed parents and others to see. And there are programs like that out, out there right now, but a more onboarding system or structure as opposed to report cards that happen three, four times a year. And there, there are these monumental events, you know, it's the, it's our come to Jesus moment where we have to, you know, everybody sits down around the kitchen table and has this conversation about the report card. Um, when I think we could have more real time information. And I would definitely like to see students become more involved in the assessment process, the grading process. That doesn't mean they're going to give themselves their grades in whatever form they might look like, but they can definitely have an expanded role in agency, in being able to have a voice in their learning, be able to co-construct criteria, help them understand what excellence looks like. Because in the end, you know, all of this work around assessment literacy, it's not so teachers become experts. It's so teachers become experts so that they can teach the students how to do this on their own behalves. That's the goal. That's the ultimate goal. And so being able to bring students inside that. So off the top of my head, those are a few things. I know I was rambling there a little bit, but those are a few of the things I think about in terms of where we're going. But I know in the, in the next 10 years anyway, we still have much to work on to bring our, not to, to sound cliche, but we definitely still have much to work on to bring our assessment practices into the 21st century. And Tom, as you've been sitting here talking about student agency, I've got about 15 of them sitting in my waiting room, <laughs> waiting, thinking, where's my summer's gone? But you've given us, you've given us loads to think about um, in terms of reflecting on our own practice, uh, the principles and practices that we have here at GIS and how ultimately, as you say, it's not about necessarily making it us the experts as educators, but um, helping our students become meaningful lifelong right. learners and so on. Before we finish today, uh, as much as I would like to sit here and keep chatting, um, I wanted to give a shout out to your podcast because you as well have a podcast um, do. that is much more developed than this little humble thing. Um, but I'm sure many of our parents would love to continue this, this conversation with you. Can you sure. um, give some details of your own podcast? Sure. Uh, it's not hard to find. The podcast is named after me. It's called the Tom Shimmer Podcast, and uh, that's basically what it is. And, and it's, a, it's a podcast that has basically three 
segments to it that I focus on. And it's mostly about learning. It's a little bit about leadership and sometimes a little bit just about life. So the main parts that I think listeners would be interested in would be um, each week I, I have on an educator, an expert. Sometimes it's a practitioner. Often it's some of the leading researchers in the field. And we talk about learning and we talk about the research and we talk about the different topics that, that are out there. So if you're interested in hearing from educational experts, I often have, I really do have on some of the best of the best around the world in terms of, of the work that's happening. Related to our conversation today, every podcast finishes with a 10 to 15 minute segment, usually around 10 minutes, a segment called Assessment Corner, where I choose an assessment topic, just like we've talked about today. And I either get questions from listeners, or I just choose a topic that was relevant from some of the trainings I do, or I just pick a topic that I know is important to talk about. And I'll spend some time talking about that. I open the podcast each week with kind of a thought-provoking idea. I try to push people's thinking and things like that. So it usually falls between somewhere between 60 to 90 minutes a week. It's once a week. It comes out uh, North America time. It comes out uh, Mondays, usually around noon. So um, overseas, that's usually in the middle of the night or early part of the evening, uh, depending on where you are. Um, yeah. And you can find that on Apple, uh, Spotify, uh, also a YouTube channel, uh, Google, Amazon, anywhere. So it's called the Tom Shimmer Podcast. And uh, yeah, would love uh, people to check it out, listen and, uh, and follow as well. And I can vouch that it is a great one to cook dinner by, <laughs> which I was doing last night. <laughs> Thank you. Fun. Tom, it's been Thank an absolute you. delight ha having you on the show today. As I said, Thank you've you. given us lots to think about, um, and we really yeah. look forward to continuing this relationship with you um, in the next school year yeah. as well. I'm looking forward to it as well, and, uh, and thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. <laughs>